You know, back in the year 1719, the author Daniel Defoe published what has been called the first novel in English. Uh, and it was called, it was a story called Robinson Crusoe about a sailor who spends 28 years shipwrecked on an island off the coast of Venezuela. And there he meets his man Friday and escapes from cannibals and is eventually rescued. And it's, it's an interesting story. Um, tells the story of his inner thoughts and his inner life and how what he was thinking each day and what he was doing and how he built himself this little palisaded fort to live in. And uh, It's a fascinating story. And there have been, since 1719, a number of updates to this story. You know, there was a few years ago a movie that came out called Castaway. Some of you probably saw it. It had Tom Hanks, who talks to a soccer ball that he names Wilson, remember? Um, there's been uh, this TV show that's been out uh, a number of years now that I, I never got quite um, caught up with. It was, uh, I, I got lost in the first episode. Uh, coincidentally, it's called Lost. And and since you did, if you did, it's one of those. If you didn't see it from the beginning, you don't understand at all what's happening now. And there are, uh, there are a few junkies out there that know every little nuanced detail and whatever. But it, the story is about a group of people, not just an individual, uh, but a group of people who get lost on this island. And of course, there's something just deeply compelling about. Uh, you know, we've watched Gilligan's Island even, you know, and you think the guy's smart enough to build uh, a radio out of a couple of coconuts and some wire, but he can't fix, figure out how to fix the boat. What's the problem with this, right? Um, <laughs> but in any case, uh, we, we, are all, we, we love stories about people who, get, who are lost and who get found. Of course, in real life, we had some, some stories here a few years ago with Hurricanes Katrina and Rita dozens of people who got separated from their families. And there was one young father who, was, who came on the news and said, has anyone seen my son? And of course, he eventually found his way back to his dad. And we, as a nation, cheered. But of course, there's also uh, other ways that a person can be lost. Not just physically separated from those he knows but lost in other ways as well. Walter Truett Anderson has a book on postmodernism that's called Reality Isn't What It Used to Be. And this is a quote from a lost teenager. He says this, I belong to the blank generation. I have no beliefs. I belong to no community, tradition, or anything like that. I'm lost in this vast, vast world. I belong nowhere. I have absolutely no identity. And that is the feeling not only of a lot of teenagers in our modern world, but a lot of adults, of being totally and completely lost, with no sense of moorings or moral foundations or tradition or truth to draw on. And the story we're going to look at today is a story about being lost in this deeper, more spiritual sense. Not just physically separated, but really and truly spiritually lost. 
And in chapter 15 of the book of Luke, you see Jesus answer to some religious people who ask him, uh, who are muttering about uh, the fact that Jesus uh, eats with tax collectors and sinners. Uh, In fact, it says, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this is verse 2, chapter 15, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Because that was something that a religious person would never do. You would never sit down with someone who was morally nasty and have a meal with them. That was how you showed your purity and your holiness, was to separate yourself from those you regarded as unholy and irreligious. And the religious people of Jesus' day were pretty sure they knew what was what, spiritually speaking. They, were, they felt like they knew who God was and what he was doing and how to relate to him. And the irreligious people, the, the ones that are called sinners here by them, are admittedly clueless. They have no idea. Uh, they don't know who God is, what he expects, don't really honestly care. But they like Jesus. And Jesus hangs out with them. And uh, this story is a story about being lost and about being lost because you have left God. And there are actually three stories that Jesus tells that all answer this same question. Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus? And Jesus answers three stories. He tells, he tells one story about a lost sheep and another story uh, about a lost dowry coin. If you were a Jewish woman, uh, you had to have a dowry to get married. And the the minimum dowry was 10 silver coins. And a woman uh, who was poor and couldn't afford a dowry would at least try to gather with her family 10 silver coins, and they would wear them in their hair when they were single to advertise the fact that they were available and eligible. Okay. Um, now, some of you ladies might want to try that. I don't know. But um, in any case, uh, this, is what, this was the custom of the day, was to wear your hair up, and then you wore these dowry coins. And so if you lost one, this was a tragedy. This is a very significant deal. Lost sheep, a little bit lesser of an economic disaster, one of these silver coins, uh, more than an economic disaster merely. This is also... Uh, affecting your future prospects, so to speak. Uh, And then he tells this story, the story of a lost son. And all of these things, all these stories are told in answer to an attitude that both the religious and the irreligious have. They all view God essentially as an employer. If you do well, if you abide by company policy... If you do what the boss wants and don't do what he doesn't want, you'll be in his good graces. And the irreligious people thought, well, I can never live up to God's standards, so I, if I'm going to hell anyway, I'm going to live like I'm on my way. I'm going to get there on a rocket ship, okay? Uh, not in a rowboat. And, um, and the religious people also viewed God as an employer, only they believed that God had a policy manual that they could live up to. And they looked down on all the people who thought they couldn't. By the way, do those two kinds of people exist today? People who think that God has a manual they can keep and people who think, well, God has a manual, but I can't keep it, so forget about the whole thing. Those two kinds of people exist today, right? 
Um, and Jesus introduces the sons in the last story one at a time. And there are three sons that you're going to see. Okay, Some of you are already wondering if your pastor has slipped a gear. But there actually are three sons in the story. Okay, uh, And you meet the younger son first. Now, if you wanted to bring this story into, into modern times, what you would do is you would give the younger son like black hair that he keeps like slicked back, a leather jacket, some ripped jeans, some Harley Rider boots, uh, and then like a 1979 T-top Trans Am that he drives so fast that he is known around town as the Flash, okay? And he is the guy that, like, his car got 19 tickets, like, yesterday, <laughs> okay? Um, he is the rebellious son. He is the, he is the one who is supposed to represent the irreligious. And he goes to his father and he makes what seems to us, since we're not Middle Eastern people, to be a simple request. He says, Dad, give me my share of the inheritance. Now, if you were a Middle Eastern person, you understand that this is not a simple request, what it seems to be on the surface. Uh, Kenneth Bailey, who's a biblical scholar who lived in the Middle East many years, uh, put it this way. He says, I've told this story to dozens of Middle Eastern people, and I say to them, what would happen if uh, a son would ask his father this question? And they all say, well, that would never happen. Well, why not? Because if he asked, his father would beat him. Well, why would he beat him? Because in asking for his inheritance, what he's asking for is for his father to die. When he says, Dad, give me my share of, in of the inheritance, let me translate that into English. What, he says, what he's saying is, Dad, would you hurry up and kick off already so I can get the money? How many of you, if you had a child who said that to you, would say, well, you know, son, you're really right. I mean, I should go ahead and just give you your share now. You wouldn't normally do that, right? But that's what the, oh, that's what the father does. He says, he says, you know what? Even though my son hates me to a point where he would rather have my stuff than have me present with him. I'm going to go ahead and give him his share of the stuff. And this illustrates something really interesting. Because a lot of us think that sin is not that serious. We think, well, you know, sin is just kind of messing up. Uh, sin is just, you know, kind of blowing it in some moral area. But it's not really that serious. But what sin is... Jesus is telling us through this story is wishing that God were dead. That we treat God when we sin just like this younger son treated his father. He's saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. And when we sin, we're rebelling against God and wishing he were dead. And saying, God, I want to do my thing and I wish you were out of the picture so I could do it in good conscience. It's wishing that God were dead. And the father has been insulted. He's been humiliated because this, in a, in a tight-knit Middle Eastern community, you would not be able to do this in a way that was private. Because giving the younger son his share of the inheritance 
would not mean going down to, uh, to Southside Bank here and writing the boy a check. It would mean selling off a portion of your estate, flocks and herds and lands, and then get, and turning it into cash and giving that to the boy. Well, who are you going to sell it to? The people who live around you, who are naturally going to ask, so why are you selling off your farms? Because the boy asked for his share of the inheritance. And every time that happens, the father is humiliated again. And the boy gathers his, he takes and gathers all his stuff together, and he boogies off to Vegas and has a fit for himself, essentially. Okay, it says, the Bible says, he squandered his sustenance in riotous living or something like that, okay? But he went to Vegas and had the world's ultimate party with dad's money. And when he ran out of money, which, as you can imagine, I mean, he, he pretended like he hit the lotto and like he was going to die tomorrow. And he spent it all. He spent every dime he had. And it says that he, he began to be in need when a famine arose in that country, right? And so what he did was he rented himself out, hired himself out to a farmer to feed pigs. Now, for a Jewish person, there would be nothing nastier than a job taking care of a pig. Because, first of all, a pig is an unclean animal. You weren't to touch them. You weren't to be around them. To be in contact with a hog was to be unclean. Still true, by the way. It's, there's, no, there's no nice, clean way of feeding pigs, Right? There's no way of doing that. Pig is a nasty animal. They, they taste good as bacon, sausage, pepperoni, you know, chops, these kinds of things. But they're still kind of a nasty animal on the hoof. And he begins to be hungry. And it says that he is so hungry that he, is, he longs to fill his stomach with the pods the, the pigs are eating. And the, these pods are probably seed pods off of a carob tree because they grow there. And he's wanting to eat these things that grow on these trees. And he's so hungry, but nobody will give him anything. And he, so he thinks to himself, well, I tell you what, I'll go home. I mean, my dad's hired servants have food to eat at least. And I, I, I'm going hungry here. So I, I'll at least go home. And I'll say, I'll say to dad, and he works up the confession, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. Now, on the surface, again, that seems like the son has finally come to his senses. In fact, Jesus says he came to his senses. But look at, how, look at what terms he's wanting to go home to his father on. He's not wanting to really go home to dad and be back in relationship with his father. He's wanting to still treat his father like an employer and himself as an employee and to, in some sense, try to work for his dad and earn back the money that he spent. Anybody ever do that? You sin against God and you think, well, I'll do enough good things to earn my way back into right relationship with God. 
I won't confess my sin so much. I'll just try to do enough good things that God will be pleased with me. And I'll balance out the ledger in my relationship with God. And that's what the son is trying to do. I've blown it all, but I'll try to pay it back to dad when I get home. And maybe he'll accept me. And in one sense, he was right. He was no longer worthy to be called his son, right? He was right about that. What he had done was shameful. It was insulting to his father. It broke off relationship with his father. And he had no right to come to his dad and and demand the rights and privileges of sonship. But he thinks he can still repay his dad. But look at how the father responds. He says this. Now, this is what the scripture says here. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And he said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine who was dead is alive again. He is, was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Now, I don't know if you expect that or not, but that's an unexpected element in the story. Again, you've got to put yourself in a Middle Eastern type culture. This is, by the way, since this is a parable about God and how he is, this is the only place in all of Scripture where you ever see God running to do anything. God's never in a hurry. And Middle Eastern men, by the way, do not run. It's undignified. And the slower that you walk, the more dignified you are. And so if you're a man of honor, you would walk. And if you were a servant, you would run. But here you see the father running. And to run, by the way, you had to do some things that were kind of undignified. You had to take this robe that you had on and you can kind of grab it down between your legs and tuck it up between your, your belt there so you've got some pants. And it looks kind of goofy to be honest. And his father, though, runs to meet the son. And he meets him outside of the community so that he can welcome him back in. Because normally speaking, again, this is a public thing. And the community in a Middle Eastern country and in a Middle Eastern culture would take vengeance upon for, your fam- for, your, for your family honor if you have shamed somebody. So, well, the father didn't beat him, but he still needs beat, and here he comes down the road. (laughs) Okay, when he gets to town, everybody have a stick. Okay, but the father runs out to get his boy before the rest of the village can get to him. And he tells his servants, you go get the best robe, probably the father's robe, and put it on him to show that relationship has been restored. He says... Put a ring on his finger. Now, this is the ancient equivalent of gold card, okay? American Express, you know, whatever it is. You had a signet ring that you wore as a elevated person that certified that you were paying a debt or that you were sending a letter or something like this, and sons wore those. Servants did not. In the same way, he says, Take, get sandals for his feet. Slaves went barefoot. Servants, I mean sons, wore sandals. Put sandals on his feet. And the father is doing everything he can to send every cue 
that this son of mine is restored to me. And the boy never really gets his apology out. And he certainly never gets out this deal that he's going to cut with his dad about being one of the hired servants. Father has says nothing about that. He says, bring the fatted calf and kill it. And they have a giant barbecue in honor of this son who has returned. And instead of condemning his son, the father runs to greet him. And he seals his forgiveness with a lavish celebration. He has the best kind of party that you can have. And Jesus' point is that that's how God loves the lost. That's how he loves the religious people and the irreligious people. And that, in other words, is how Jesus says God loves you and loves me. The ones who have rejected God. Because all of us in a certain sense, are the younger son in the story. That we have all done things which indicate to God, I wish you were dead, I want to do my own thing. And yet God loves us, and when we return to him, welcomes us in, not as a servant, but as a son. And that's not where the story ends. You've got the older son now. Now, the older son is... Uh, someone with a conservative haircut, a Brooks Brothers suit, uh, you know, wingtip shoes, a white starched shirt. You know, uh, he's probably an accountant or an engineer. You know, I mean, he's a, he's a straight-laced, button-down kind of a fella, okay, whose world is ordered. Sorry for all you engineers. <laughs> um <laughs> I did leave out the pocket protector part of that. But anyway, uh, he's got a TI-80 calculator right there. You know? But anyway, um, no. But the older son is, is the one who is trying to live by all the rules and to do exactly what is expected of him. And the older son, in fact, is working in the fields when the younger boy comes home. And he's, he's a good boy. He stays home, works hard for his dad, trying to make the family prosper, honors his father and his family, his community. He hasn't messed up. He hasn't drunk, done, done drugs. He hasn't gotten drunk. He hasn't uh, been with any of those uh, um, evening uh, ladies uh, like the younger boy. Uh, he is the one that if you were a mother... And your daughter brought this boy home. This would be the one that they would go, thank God. (laughs) Okay. Whereas if you brought home the younger son, your mother would go, would say, dear, we need to pray for you. (laughs) Right. Um, This is the boy that your mother is praying you will bring home, ladies. All right. Uh, And he hears the sound from the fields of all the music and the dancing, and he asked one of the servants who's running around outside, he says, what's going on? He says, hey, your brother has come home. He was lost, and now he's found. And what's his response? He gets not excited, but angry. And he refuses to go into the party. And you might not know it, but that's a shocking thing, too. Because in Middle Eastern families at this time, the, the eldest boy 
whenever there's a community celebration, whenever we're hosting the community in our home, the eldest boy holds this kind of a semi-official role like the best man at a wedding. And he is expected to be there to honor his family and his father by going into the party. And he doesn't do that. And he refuses to go in. And so what does the father do? Once again, there's a son who is separated from his father and the father goes out to be reconciled. Now when the, ho- when the host of a party leaves, what does everybody else do? Huh, wonder where he's going. And they follow him out. And in front of God and everybody, this older son embarrasses his dad. And he says, this boy of yours, you can just hear that tone, right? That boy of yours went off and squandered your wealth on harlots. And you never even gave me a young goat which is a much less costly meal, to, to make merry with my friends. And I've been here working and slaving for you all my life. And you never threw me a party. But this boy, this worthless son of yours, comes home and you kill the fatted calf for him. What gives, Pop? How is he viewing his relationship with his father? Not like a son, like a slave. And the younger, the younger son, it's true, has surrendered to his passions. But the older son has a problem too. He has surrendered himself to his pride and his self-sufficiency. He's proud of all the good things he's done. And he is accusing his father of being a fool. And worse... He accuses his dad of being unrighteous, of refusing to pay what he owes to his older son. He's basically saying, you stupid old man, you cheat, you took advantage of me and all I've done for you. After all I've done for you, you never did anything good for me. And he's doing it, remember, in front of everybody. Because the whole town is there. Very probably. And the elder son's response shows us another aspect of our own hearts. When somebody sins against us, we don't want mercy. Very often we want justice, not mercy. And when somebody sins against me, very often, my if it's a real serious issue, I think this, let justice come though the heavens fall. And we think that the whole cosmic weight of right and wrong hangs on you being vindicated, right? And I want not just to be right, I want to be shown to be right in front of everybody. And that's what this older son wants. But look at how the father responds. Again, he's been insulted and humiliated by both now of his boys. The good boy and the black sheep. Look at what the father says. He says, my son, you are always, see how he addressed him? My son. 
You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, remember the relationship, in other words, son, is dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. Both of these boys got lost in their rejection of their father. But what's interesting in the story is it's the bad boy, the black sheep, who at the end of the story winds up reconciled. Because the story ends right there with the older son, not the younger one, standing outside the party and in his pride and self-righteousness refusing to be reconciled to his father. And yet the father's love still goes out to him and still remains unquenchable in his pursuit of his son. Both the good boy and the bad one, the father loves. And we always call this story, you know, the story of the lost son or the story of the prodigal. But it's better called the story of the loving father. Because the loving father had not just these two sons, but he had a third son. As I said, some of you are thinking I've slipped a gear here because you're going, the story's over. It's verse 32, and there's no third son. What are you talking about? But if you miss the third son, you've missed the point of the story. Because the third son is the only begotten son, not adopted son like you and I, but the begotten son of the father. And Jesus, the one telling the story, is the third son. He is the insider who truly knows what the father is like. In fact, he says in another place in the Gospels, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. And let me tell you about him in an authoritative and true and completely right way. And he is the third son. He is the one who was sent by our Father to go into the world to get you and I. And, to, and just like the, the Father in the story pays the cost in humiliation and suffering and even real financial cost to have his sons be reconciled to him, our Father loves us and sent his Son into the world to pay the cost for what we did. Not for what he did, but for what we did. That our sins are piled up to heaven. Whether we're a religious person who thinks that somehow we can earn God's favor by doing all the right things, or whether we're an irreligious person who thinks, well, if I'm going to hell, I might as well have fun on the way on the way there. Whichever kind of son we are, Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin. And he takes our place. He, he pays uh, for the sin that we did. And when we return to him, just like when the younger son returned, Jesus says there is a party that gets thrown. In fact, if you if you read earlier in this in this uh, passage about the lost sheep, 
What's it say? It says, I tell you, when the lost sheep is found, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. That in God's calculus, one lost sinner who really found his way home to the Father is worth 99 righteous people who've already made themselves right with God. And you have to have a party. You have to celebrate. And in Jesus' death, by the way, you know, we, I say we want justice and not mercy, but in Jesus' death, we get both. God's justice is satisfied in Jesus' death on our behalf. There is a payback, in other words. You know, when you get in a fight with somebody, you think, boy, it's payback time. You know, they forked my yard, I'm going to TP their house. <laughs> okay, uh, I'm going to wrap their car in saran wrap all the way around all four doors. You know, uh, we want justice, not mercy, right? Um, that's not a that's not an admonition, by the way, or a recommendation. Okay, um, but in Jesus' death, there is payback. Jesus takes the penalty for our sin. In Jesus' death, there's also mercy, right? Mercy that gets extended to us because the requirements of justice have been satisfied. So don't miss the third son in the story because Jesus in his death is saying to each of us, payment has been made. Welcome to the party. Welcome to the party. Come on in. Now, the you know, we've been looking at this story uh, as part of our series here on, the, on being a peacemaker. And what I want you to see, first of all, in this story is that God is the ultimate peacemaker. In the Gospels, in the Gospel, He makes peace between us and Him, whichever kind of son we are, religious person, non-religious person who doesn't care, God, in sending his son, had the desire to make peace between us and him and between us and each other. Because sometimes the religious ones uh, look down on the irreligious ones and refuse to be reconciled with one another. And I want to just look at how how this story gives us some things to, uh, to think about here. In response to the gospel, you can be inspired to glorify God in the midst of conflict. In the midst of conflict, you can be inspired to glorify God because of the gospel. Because the gospel is the story of how God loved us and sent his son. Pay for things, not that he did, but that we did. And we can look at that and realize that we owed a debt to God that is far greater than we could ever pay. And this person's debt against me is so much smaller than the debt I owed to God. And so in this conflict with this person, I can set aside my own agenda, my own need for justice, and pursue a way to glorify God in this relationship and in this conflict with this person. Because of the gospel, I can begin to get the log out of my own eye. Remember? Talked about that, about... How when we're in sin and we're in conflict with somebody else, a lot of times we have a tendency to magnify their stuff and minimize ours. 
we look at their stuff through a microscope at ours through the wrong end of the telescope so that ours looks far away and small and theirs looks giant and up close, right? But because of the gospel, we can begin to get the log out of our own eye. We can begin to realize how much we have been forgiven and extend forgiveness on that basis. In response to the gospel, we can gently restore those who have wronged you, just like the father in this parable goes out and gently restores his son. He, he's, he knows his son has sinned against him, but he's not going to let the sin that's happened hinder his relationship going forward because the son has come home and it's time to party. Because of the gospel, you can go and be reconciled. Because you've tasted the forgiveness of the Father in heaven, you can extend the same kind of lavish forgiveness to other people. Not based on your own power, but based on the Spirit's empowerment and filling of your heart. That as you get into conflict with somebody, you realize that they have, they have incurred a debt against you, but your debt against God is so much greater. And so you can be reconciled and extend forgiveness just as you've received. And let me just add one final thing. Because of the gospel, you can go and tell others about the majesty and the greatness of the sacrifice that the third son, Jesus, made on your behalf. Because when we understand really how much we have been forgiven, and how much we have been saved from, we can't keep it in. We can't let it affect our relationships with each other, and we can't keep it in. We can't say, you know what, I've got the greatest message and the greatest news that I've ever received, but I'm going to sit like this and not go anywhere and not do anything and not tell anybody about it. We can't do that. We have the most marvelous gift that is possible to get. We have the greatest message that has ever been shared. We have the most marvelous promises that a person can ever receive. We look forward to a guaranteed inheritance as we stand before God. And because of that, and when we realize the, the nastiness of our sin and the greatness of God's forgiveness... We can't help ourselves but to tell other people we know about it. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father,